Welcome to The Logbook. I'm your host, Lucas Weekly. This episode is supported by you, the listeners, through Patreon. Head over to thelogbookpodcast.com for more information. This time we listen to some military test flight stories from a pilot who flew almost every jet aircraft produced between the early 50s and late 60s, and flew many other airplanes as well. The first incidence is when I was a kid, 14, 15 years old. I had aircraft start to come apart on me in flight, but I was fortunate enough to be able to get the airplanes down and survived uh, without damaging the airplanes, other than the fact that they had broken. I became so adept at doing that that uh, people came to me and asked me to do the test flying on their airplanes, even when I was a kid, because I seemed to have uh, good fortune and good luck. I always managed to get the airplane back. Uh, that that's that, that's a good situation. That's carried over into the Air Force flight test business because even there, when an incident occurred, I managed to find a way of saving the aircraft and saving people on board if there are people on board. So uh, I guess one thing just led into another. Now, there were only two times our storyteller could not get a plane home. And this first one was while flying a reconnaissance mission for the Air Force during the Korean War. We're flying at night, and a machine gun-type weapon with radar control knocked out my right engine, and the cowling on the engine popped open this way. Creating a big scoop. It wouldn't come off, so the drag was so heavy that the airplane wouldn't fly. It was a brilliant moonlight night. And had it not been for that, we would have lost. But anyway, I could see a, a, a valley with a dead end up there. And I, we were headed in for it. We couldn't turn because there's mountains on both sides. So we had to bail out. I was captured about uh, 12 hours later on the top of a mountain, captured by the North Koreans. And uh, then the Chinese heard about it, so they came and physically took us away from the North Koreans, which was good because the Koreans normally just killed everybody. They didn't take prisoners. But the Chinese were more lenient in that respect. So we managed to uh, get through for 15 months and then got back, back to the States. The only B-26 crew in the whole war that got the whole crew back. So I was happy about that. The second time was while test flying a new jet aircraft that you might be familiar with. The mission for the test flight was to go to altitude and collect all the data on the way up for the engine performance primarily, as well as the aircraft performance. And you normally go to the extreme altitude, collect all the data, and then you make high-speed runs or something of that type, depending on the mission that you're on. We always develop what we call a flight test card. So on that card denotes exactly what you're going to do on that mission. And that's all you do on that mission because they want to collect the data and don't want to take any chance of losing the data. So you finish the card, you come home. You don't fool around. So that's what happened. I was just going to altitude. I got to 30,000 when it exploded, but we were going intended to go to 40,000. But of course, it didn't make it in this case. Unfortunately, a maintenance man left a screwdriver 
in the intake of the engine. Now, in the very front part of the engine is a controllable screen. Now, they normally keep that screen closed on takeoff until you get some altitude. That way, if you pick up some something off the ground and suck it into the engine, that screen will stop it. So that's its purpose. However, you lose power when you do that. It interferes with the airflow. So normally when you get up, get your gear up, get your flaps up, and get four or 5,000 feet, you open that screen in order to get full power. Well, with that screwdriver in there, when I opened the screens, it released the screwdriver. The, the engine can't take that. So that's really what caused the accident. It just cleaned out all the stages of the compressor right on back through the turbine. And it won't run that way. It generates so much steel and metal and aluminum and so forth, it just packs up and blows the engine apart. If you leave everything to today's operation, everything will happen automatic. But in those days, nothing was automatic. The first thing that happened when the, uh, when the canopy itself came off, which is part of the ejection procedure, when you pull the handles up, the canopy goes, you squeeze the trigger, you go. That's the way it works. When the canopy came off, the helmet came off. The oxygen max went with it because this is the early days. They didn't know. And the helmets and so forth we had were a piece of junk. It was all kinds of open space in the helmet. Well, in a pressurized airplane, that's air. You lose the canopy, you lose the pressure, all that air has got to go someplace. It just takes the helmet with it. So we learned from that, you got to fill this helmet. It's got to be full of something, not air. So I did open the chute as soon as possible, which was a mistake. I should have waited till I got lower, but I was spinning so fast that I couldn't tell what kind of altitude I had. So I figured I better go ahead and open the chute and take my chance. So I did. So I was at altitude. Now, I may have passed out for a period of time, but I did come to, because I, I remember passing through clouds, and the clouds weren't all that big. So they were probably topped out at 10, 12, maybe 15,000 feet. So between 30,000 and maybe 15,000, I may have been, uh, may have been blacked out. I, I really can't prove it one way or another. And it also felt nice and warm, because it was in the summertime, in June, in fact. The flight surgeon seemed to think, yes, you passed out, but you came to, which you, you, you expect that. We also learned that you should be wearing clothing that's easily recognized because you go down in the forest someplace, you can't see it. So we started using orange flying suits. I didn't hit the ground. I landed in trees. I had to climb up, get a hold of the tree, release my my chute and climb back down. And when I got down, I knew a friend of mine was also flying at the same time. And he knew I had a chance to talk with him before I actually bailed out. And he, he knew where I was, so he turned headed in that direction. And there was a little opening there. And he flew across and he saw me there. And I knew if I just sit still, they would come pick me up with a helicopter. Well, we sat there for about 10 minutes, and then people started pouring over the mountain because they, they saw me coming down. 
And I got up to move and I found out this ankle was broke. We got to the hospital and of course I couldn't walk. I had a flying suit, an anti-G suit, and the shoes I were wearing were ankle high and long knee-high socks, which is standard procedure in that kind of clothing. <laughs> the flight surgeon took the G-suit off, took my shoe off, pulled the sock off, and then the toe of the sock was the leaves from the tree that I hit. And nobody ever figured out how leaves got in my, into my socks. But the flight surgeon pulled the sock off, and there was leaves in there. The tree that I hit, because I cleaned off the limbs on the way down. I broke a bunch of bunch of limbs, and they cracked this, this right ankle. So from that, we learned, one, the helmets were no good. The flying suit needs to be easily recognized, and we need to wear boots, not shoes. Now, what shoes, I'm talking about GI shoes. You know, they're ankle high, not low cuts. Because now today, they all wear boots as a result of that. So I was so mesmerized by the story and preoccupied with trying to get the best possible audio while holding the mic that I hadn't really thought of what the plane was that he flew in the story since he only gave the military identification number F-86 instead of its more well-known name. So when I asked him what the plane was when he had finished to double-check the facts, I was definitely surprised. So did, that was what jet? It was F-86, the Sabre. Oh, really? Yeah, the Sabre. Well, are you familiar with the airplane? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can show you a little model of it. Sure. Just a second. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the Sabre, its most notable features are its swept wings, polished aluminum fuselage, and its intake where the nose or propeller of a normal airplane would have gone. Our storyteller then returned with an armful of models, all different airplanes that we would later find out that he had flown during his time as a test pilot. This is the F-86. That's the airplane that won the war in Korea against the MiGs. Wonderful airplane. Easy to fly. This is called an RF-84. He made two more trips carrying out models to show us. Some were made of plastic and very simple depictions of the planes that they represented, and others were made of metal, weighing several pounds and exhibiting fine details. This is an 84F. This was the, the uh, reconnaissance version of it. And this is the fighter version. One piece is missing. Now, this is the Super Saber, the F-100. And this is the B-66, uh, and the engines are off. The engines hang under the wings like this. I've got a lot more models, but they're put away, packed up someplace. Uh, you used to say, well, sooner or later when I retire, I'm going to make a model of all the airplanes I ever flew. And then I got thinking, where am I going to put them? <laughs> where am I going to put them? Uh, so I didn't do it. Every model had a story. And one in particular was while test flying a large cargo plane. This is the C-141, big cargo airplane. This is the two engines that went out on a test flight. And suddenly the crew in the back of the airplane says, we're losing fluid out one engine. Well, we knew what kind of fluid it was, hydraulic fluid. So in that case, you have to shut the engine down because... Uh, if you don't, you're going to get a fire. So we shut it down. And about that time, another engine developed a problem. We had to shut that down. 
both engines on one side. But fortunately, we were light, and the airplane would fly quite well. But in the process, we lost the utility system or the hydraulic system, which means landing gear. We found out uh, real quick like that I could fly the airplane. I could fly it safely. I had all kinds of fuel, but uh, we were flying and wondering about getting the gear down and so on and so forth. And we're not having any luck, and it's a brand-new airplane, so they contacted the manufacturer to see if there's any suggestions about how to get this gear down. Well, they went through everything they could think of. They had all their engineers on board, and we tried everything that they could come up with. Finally, they said, belly it in, slide it in on the belly. And I said, well, I'm not ready for that. I said, we've got a few things we're going to have to try that you haven't mentioned yet. And we're going to fly around now, and we're going to figure on this thing for a while. Well, I finally figured out how to get the gear down. And we did, and we saved the airplane. What it amounted to is uh, if you can get any hydraulic pressure, you can get the thing off the uplocks. And if you get it off the uplocks, it just might fall down and lock. So I discovered that if I, we lost all the hydraulic fluid, but fortunately we carry on test flights carts with all kinds of hydraulic fluid on board, and just in case something like this happens. And I figured out if I resurface the hydraulic system, I might get one quick jolt on that system. And the engineer says, don't do it. You're liable to have a fire. And I explained to him, I can't have a fire because it's on the, the engines are running on the other side. If I get a leak, it's going to be on the dead side. So don't worry about it any fire. But it, to make a long story short, that worked. We got the gear down and we got it locked and we got the airplane down with no damage at all. But that was a case where even the engineers are not aware of how the airplane is really functions. They knew theoretically how it worked, but there's a couple of things they didn't realize you could do. One of the other models he took out had a couple very large pitot tubes and some other interesting instrumentation. This is the, what we call the P-3 Orion, which we flew the hurricanes in. Well, one of the airplanes we flew hurricanes in. See, that's for the Department of Commerce, and it was strictly for weather research. We had the airplane built special for that purpose. We had the airplane loaded up with uh, science and all kinds of instrumentation, and the purpose of everything we did was research. And they were studying hurricanes, how they worked, uh, what they might be able to do to control hurricanes, uh, seeding hurricanes, and uh, you name it, and we did it. We would normally fly back and forth through the storm to hit it from all directions. It would make anywhere from about six to 15 passes through a storm on one given mission. So every time you had to go through into the center and then back out again, flying at various altitudes and uh, loaded with instrumentation to, to gather all the data that which was studied later. The only trick to flying a hurricane is knowing how to maneuver the airplane to prevent going into the the eye wall itself, except straight through the eye wall. 
I don't know if you're familiar how a hurricane works, but you know it rotates counterclockwise. And you've got strong winds until you break through the eye wall. You get into the eye wall, it's dead calm. No wind at all. So as you approach the storm, the, suddenly the winds start picking up at a terrific rate. What, what happens to the airplane? It starts drifting. So you have to realize the drift and counteract for the drift so you can get through the, the eye wall other than it push you around the storm. Well, we wanted to get into the storm, not around it. So this, the trick is to counteract your drift as the wind picks up. But then when you get to the eye wall and the maximum wind, suddenly you break through. Now all of this drift disappears, but you've got the correction in. So if you don't take care of that immediately, you're going to wind up in the eye wall and stay there. And you don't want that because that's the worst part of the storm. So it's, it's merely a, a method of technique. The eyes will vary from 10 to 60 miles, depending on which storm. I've seen 60-mile eyes, and I've seen 8-mile eyes. And typically, when the eye gets smaller than 8 miles, we don't fly them anymore. They're, they're too intense. And we've had several engine failures in the storm, and that's a pretty serious situation. They've happened in, in the eye wall, going through because there's so much water involved. Sometimes it's a mechanical failure of the engine itself, and you have to take care of that. You know, you feather the engine and press on. Uh, you never know when it's going to fail or how it's going to fail. You just have to be prepared to take care of it when it occurs. But we always manage to get it back. Our storyteller also had many other achievements and missions he shared with the use of these models. We developed the uh, maximum speed, which clean like this uh, would go supersonic in a dive. That was part of the test mission to make sure that they all go. When you hit between about 9-6 Mach and Mach 1, the airplane wanted to roll. I developed uh, instrumentation systems for it. Various manufacturers come in, have a, an instrument, a flight instrument, that they, they would like to sell to the military. So they bring in samples, we'd install them in airplanes, and we'd take them up and fly them and write a report on them. And most of them were really weird, <laughs> really weird. I mean, you didn't really have to fly them to reject them, but uh, we had to do it anyway. Uh, the B-57 is one of my favorite airplanes, so far as uh, jet engines are concerned. You can shoot it full of holes and it still come home. The only ones that ever shot down in Vietnam was on the ground. It's not a fast airplane. Uh, clean like this was about a uh, Mach 0.83, and it would pitch. And if it pitched, it'd come apart. So we had to find that out by pitching a few of them. This airplane here, uh, we developed the uh, automatic landing system on the F-100. We developed the uh, anti-seize brakes we went through a carload of wheels, tires. Oh yeah, in fact, I flew this airplane right here. We developed the JATO system. I started out with one JATO on each side and we went up to eight on each side. I had to go to the B-57, the all active organizations, and teach them how to fly it without exceeding limitations on it. I developed the navigation system in the B-57. B-36, you ever hear of that? It had 10 engines, six pistons, and four jets. I made the first flight on that airplane when we put the four turbine engines on it. Now, I've flown many, many other airplanes like the C-47, C-46s, C-54s, 
see uh, 45 whole series airplanes, uh, B-25s, B-26s, B-50s and B-29s, just go on and on. Jim Gano became a pilot in the Air Force in 1949 when he was 21 and then left in 1968. Jim has over 25,000 hours test flying airplanes, and to put that into perspective, if you arrange those hours consecutively, that's almost three years non-stop in the cockpit of an airplane. Today Jim is 87 and flies his Skybolt aerobatic biplane at least twice a week, sometimes more. Yeah, I've got to fly. I have to fly. I've done it all my life and I'm not going to quit now. You can check out pictures of Jim's models as well as some of the other planes that he flew by going to the article on the logbookpodcast.com. Special thanks goes out to Megan Brock, our recording and interviewing assistant, and to the Experimental Aircraft Association for mentioning the logbook in their latest newsletter. Our interview with Jim included many other stories and great dialogue that we just couldn't fit in this episode. So if you can't get enough of these stories, you should check out our Patreon page and consider supporting. There you can have access to unedited interviews, sneak peeks of upcoming episodes, and even listen to finished episodes a week before they're released. This podcast isn't free to produce, and your support over on Patreon is what makes this show possible and ad-free. Please consider supporting us. Any amount is helpful. Even $1 per episode can help make the show better. You can check out our Patreon page by going to patreon.com slash thelogbookpodcast, or by clicking on the orange banner in our website. Also, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps bring awareness to the logbook. If you have a story about anything in aviation, we would love to hear it, and it may even become an episode of the logbook. You can send us an email by using the contact page on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you come back for the next entry in the logbook.